Robin Heipel. Um, Ray is the senior pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church, where I serve as the associate pastor. So the saints, along with Ray and Robin Heipel at Providence, greet you. Pray that you all have had a very Merry Christmas. Looking forward to sharing God's word with you. But before we get to the word of God, let us pray together, presenting our requests to God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of his son, Jesus Christ, through whom he hears us and answers us according to the power of God, the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Our blessed God, you are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your being, in your goodness, power, righteousness, holiness, knowledge. Lord, you control all things, things that are seen and unseen. O God, whatsoever exists belongs to you, for by you they are created and for you they continue. O Lord, we cry out that you would hear us, that we might draw near to you through the veil of your Son's flesh, that, O God, you would send down your Holy Spirit to accomplish all of your goodwill. We pray, O Father, for the greatness of your name to reach the ends of the earth, that your name would be exalted upon the earth as it is in heaven. Grant, O God, that this world would see you as their God. Grant, O Lord, repentance, that men and women and children across the four corners of this world would turn to you, that they would come to you through your blessed Son and receive the forgiveness of their sins that they would be added to your everlasting kingdom, that they would receive the eternal inheritance of everlasting life. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon this world. We praise you that you are good to your creation, that you give sunshine and rain and good things to all. And we pray, O oh Father, you would continue to preserve and sustain your creatures. O oh Father, we pray for those who rule, those who will govern, those who are in high places. We ask, Lord God, that you would give them wisdom, give them character, give them, Lord, a discerning heart to rule well, to do so in a way that pleases you. We pray, O oh Father, that those who devise wickedness, those who would oppress or persecute your people, that, O oh Lord, you would remove their influence, grant to them repentance, or cut them off, O oh God. We pray that they would rule righteously and be a blessing to your church, that they would indeed be nursing fathers to your people. Father, we thank you for your church around the world, and we pray for those churches who are meeting all over the world today on, on your day, your Sabbath, your Lord's day. Grant, O oh Lord, your Holy Spirit to them, that they would worship you in spirit and in truth, Offering to you worship that is pleasing and acceptable in your sight according to the merits of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray you would protect them and sustain them. O oh God, we ask that you would cut off from your kingdom all sources of iniquity. That you, O oh God, would help us to repent of our sins. That you would sanctify us. That you, Lord, would bring to completion the salvation which you have wrought in us. We pray, O oh Father, for the unity for which your Son prayed, that we would be united in the truth of the gospel, that we all submitting ourselves to your rule 
would love one another. We pray, Father, for your churches here in this area. We pray especially for this congregation this morning and the saints in it. We beg, O God, that you would bless those who are ill, those who are anxious, those who are lonely, those who are brokenhearted, those, Lord, who may be caught up in some sin. We ask for your grace, O God. Please bind up broken bodies, heal wounded consciences, grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. We ask, O God, now as we turn to you and worshiping you through the hearing of your word, that you would bless your word, that you, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, would accomplish much through it, that you would purify the mouth of your servant, and that you would open the ears of your saints, that you would give us hearts to obey and to believe, and that by believing your word, O God, we would be saved to the uttermost. We ask these things in the name of our precious Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would turn with me, please, in your copy of God's Word to the book of Numbers. We will be looking in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Hear now the word of God Almighty. This is God's infallible word. It is written down for our instruction. Let us give careful attention to it. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. Then Israel journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who looks, excuse me, it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. We call this book, the book of Numbers, Numbers, because of the two censuses taking in it. There's one of them in chapter 1 and then one in chapter 6, and they number the people of Israel. And so we call it the book of Numbers. But in Hebrew, the book of Numbers is called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's called in the wilderness because it recounts Israel's 38 years of wandering in the wilderness from Mount Sinai to the promised land. The theme of wilderness 
that is wandering in the wilderness or a desert, if you will, is especially relevant for you, dear Christian, because you have likewise been delivered from sin and death, and yet you find yourself wandering, as it were, in the wilderness, seeking that promised land of heaven, that eternal rest. And in this passage, we see how the Lord leads his people through that wilderness. And you can liken Israel's time in the wilderness to that time that you experience between the time of your redemption until the time of your final reward. Here in Numbers 21, we see that when God's people sin, God disciplines them. But when they repent, the Lord delivers those who believe. When God's people sin, he disciplines them. But when they repent, he delivers those who believe. We're going to look at this in three parts. The first of those is sin. The Lord's people sin in verses 4 and 5. We read about the sin, and we can see that the difficulty of their journey led them to be discouraged. And this discouragement on the way gave way to temptations and complaints against Moses and God himself. This discouragement is described for us in verse 4. The soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. This word that we translate as discouraged means to lose patience. Here it refers to the people losing confidence in God's plan and losing confidence in his provision. They were no longer content with the manner in which the Lord was leading them and providing for them. I want you to remember this, that a discouraged soul is a breeding ground for discontentment. A discouraged soul is a breeding ground for ingratitude. Israel's ingratitude is expressed by their complaints against God and against Moses. We read this. The people spoke against God and against Moses, and they complained, saying this, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Observe, please, just how unjust these complaints were. Israel seems to have forgotten that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He called them out of the house of bondage. Remember that the Lord responded to their cries, their pleas for help, their groaning under the hand of Pharaoh, and the Lord God, by a mighty hand, rescued them and led them out of Egypt. And they ask, why have you brought us into the wilderness to die? The Lord told them, I am bringing you to a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they complain, why have you brought us to die in the wilderness? They seem to have forgotten how God had miraculously and generously supplied all of their needs. Were they without food and water? Had not God rained down manna from heaven? Supplying bread from heaven, which is later on called angel's food. He sent them food. He sent them manna from heaven, and yet they despised his kind provision to them. He gave them water. 
He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water to drink out of the rock. He brought streams of water out of the rock and caused the water to run down as rivers, as Psalm 78 says. The problem, beloved, was not the Lord's plan. The problem was not the Lord's provision. The problem here was his ungrateful people who complained against him. Now, why were they discouraged? It may not be immediately apparent from these verses, but the context, the setting in which they were, helps to explain it. And the first thing I want you to consider is the difficulty of exhaustion. Exhaustion. This is now the 40th year since Israel left Egypt. They had grown weary. They had been traveling They had been going through the wilderness for a long time. They got tired. You know what this is like. You know that sometimes when you are laboring to do well, you are tempted to grow weary. It's interesting that the devil is much more resilient, much harder working, much less apt to exhaustion than God's saints are, and Through 40 years in the wilderness, the devil simply wore them down. They became exhausted, and so that exhaustion brought them to discouragement. Be mindful of periods in your life when you are feeling exhausted. Know that this is a time when you are ripe for temptation. Exhaustion is a human weakness. As a a creature, you are liable to it. And that is a time when the devil looks for opportunities to tempt. In addition to this difficulty of exhaustion, consider also the difficulty of persecution. In verse 4, we read that they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Now, back in chapter 20, in the previous chapter, we would have read that Edom refused Israel passage through their land. You see, Israel was heading north towards the promised land, towards the land of Canaan, and they wanted to just cut through just a little sliver of the land of Edom. And the Edomites said, no, if you come through our land, we will meet you with swords. They should have, according to their relationship to Israel, remember Edom were Israel's relatives, They should have rather given them passage through there. Furthermore, Israel, being the church of God on the earth, should have received protection and provision from this human government. But instead, Edom said, no, you may not go through our land. You must go around. And so Israel is having to reverse course and go back down and head down around the sea. Sometimes persecution increases our faith. Sometimes persecution is a boon or benefit to the church of God. But oftentimes just the reverse is true. History is filled with churches that no longer exist because they were destroyed by persecutors. Scripture is filled with examples of saints who fell under persecution. Persecution is oftentimes 
a source of temptation. Think, for instance, of Peter. Peter denied Christ when he was so softly persecuted by just a servant girl. We can find examples in history. Think of Athanasius, who, though he eventually found his spine, initially fled persecution. You think of Martin Luther, who, on his first day at the Diet of Worms, could not even speak. You think of Thomas Cranmer, who, because of the persecution of other saints, renounced his faith before the Lord restored him. What I want you to understand is that while we think that persecution always solidifies the saints, sometimes persecution discourages the saints and provides for them temptation. And that temptation leads them then into sin and ingratitude towards God. Now, in addition to the difficulty of persecution, we have what I will call the difficulty of exaltation and humiliation. Exaltation is being raised up. Humiliation is being brought down. There is, in verse 4, a literal and geographical descent descent from Mount Hor to the road by the Red Sea. If you were to look at it on a map, you would see they are descending geographically, topographically. But I am speaking here metaphorically. Israel came off a spiritual high and was finding themselves in a spiritual low. In the first three verses of chapter 21, Israel had just defeated the Canaanites in a battle. This was a spiritual high. The Lord granted them victory over one of their enemies, and that was a spiritual high. And now they find themselves having to skirt around the land of Edom, going away with their tail tucked between their legs, as it were. I can tell you for my part that had I been there at that time, having just defeated the Canaanites in battle, I would have said, who do these Edomites think they are? Let them come. Let us give them the taste of our swords, even as we did to the Canaanites. We are not skirting around this whole nation. We will go through there just as we did to the Canaanites. But that is not what they did. They had to go around the land. And so now they went from a spiritual high to a spiritual low. And that provided for them a source of temptation. Know this about human beings in general and about yourselves in particular, that In the ebbs and flows of life between spiritual highs and spiritual lows, you will find yourself ripe for temptation. We do not do well when we either ascend or descend. When we have highs and lows, we go through periods of of joy and periods of melancholy. And it is at that change from high to low or low to high that you are especially susceptible to temptations. I want you to think, for instance, of Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. You know, Hagar was a servant who suddenly became exalted. She became exalted because she became pregnant with a child from Abraham. And so then she became puffed up and began to persecute Sarah. But then Sarah uh, regained power over the situation and had Hagar put outside, and then Hagar was humbled. And she responded then by weeping bitterly and losing all hope and going into despair. This oftentimes happens with us as we move from periods of exaltation to periods of humiliation or vice versa. 
And this was for Israel here in the book of Numbers an opportunity for discouragement. There's another difficulty that we see here in this passage lurking in the context of this passage. I'll call it generational succession. Back in chapter 20, which is the immediate context of the events in this chapter, we read of the death of Miriam, Moses' sister, who was a great and eminent saint in the history of Israel. We read of the failure of Moses and the Lord chastising him and telling him he will not enter into the promised land. And we read of the death of Aaron, the high priest. What are we seeing here? What we are seeing is the falling of one generation and the rising of another. We are seeing the death and failure of Israel's heroes. We are seeing children growing up and observing their parents and grandparents and their leaders, their ministers, failing and dying. We are seeing generational succession. The falling of one generation and the rising of another. We see this in our own context, do we not? In the church, do you know, just in the last month, we have buried four founding members of Providence. We are seeing the going away of one generation, and at the same time, by God's mercy, the rising of another generation. But in the midst of this rising and falling of generations, there's conflict oftentimes, isn't there? And there's oftentimes discouragement. Discouragement to the rising generation as they see the loss and even the failure of the previous generation. We see this in our nation. We see this amongst our politicians. And oftentimes the, the falling generation looks upon that rising generation and sees in them many spots and wrinkles and weaknesses. I'm not going to, I don't have time today to get into all the differences between the generations and all of the strife that can exist between them, but you know exactly the difficulties that as you have one generation succeeding another, there's opportunity for discouragement, and that discouragement then becomes an occasion for temptation to sin. But let me give you, in this midst of the temptations of the strife between generations, let me give you two things that we all need to remember. Number one, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Number two, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So we see Israel's sin then, and their sin is complaining against the Lord, and that sin came about because they were discouraged. Their souls had become discouraged, and rather than rejoicing in the Lord, they began to complain against him. We see the second point in our text, the Lord's discipline. How does God respond to the sins of his people? Well, we don't have to guess this. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord Jesus himself tells us this. As many as I love, 
I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Do you believe that, saints? That the Lord's love for you brings about rebukes and chastening when you sin? That's what we see going on in this passage. The Lord's people sinned against him, and now what does the Lord do? He rebukes and chastens them. Look at it in verse 6. So the Lord sent. It is very clear that God did it. The Lord sent to them fiery serpents. I don't know whether the Lord created these serpents for this occasion to send them, or did he simply allow all of the serpents in the area that he had been protecting them from to be unleashed and come upon them? Or did he summon all of these fiery serpents to come to where Israel was? But one way or the other, the Lord himself sent upon his people fiery serpents who bit them and killed them. These are called fiery serpents, and it may be because of their color. Many of these snakes, as you know, serpents are snakes, and many of the the vipers and asps that live in that part of the world can have a copper color. They may be called fiery for that reason, or perhaps they are called fiery because of the burning sting of their bites. But what I want you to observe is how the discipline of the Lord fits so well with the sin which his people had committed. They sinned with their mouths against the Lord. They had poison of asp under their lips. And the Lord set to them fiery serpents who bit them and envenomated them and filled them with poison and killed them. James chapter 3 verse 8 says that the tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And that's what happened. That's what we saw when Israel spoke against the Lord and spoke against Moses. The tongue was an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Consider for a moment, beloved, how many have dug their grave with their tongues. And so the Lord sent these serpents and they bit the people. And in verse 6 we read, And many of the people of Israel died. That's just a short little sentence, but it describes for us what I think would be a terrifying scene. I can scarcely imagine the horror as men and women and children, young and old, spouses, friends, died painfully, excruciatingly from snake bites. They didn't know whether the next basket they turned over or the next woodpile they reached into or whether the next snake might be for them. The serpents came in and bit and killed many of them. Now, of course, we might think to ourselves, this is a horrific scene, and thank God this was in the Old Testament. But you know that this is not exclusive to the Old Testament, that God changes not, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You remember in Acts chapter 5 when a man and woman named Ananias and Sapphira lied to God the Holy Spirit and they fell dead as a discipline and fear spread over the whole church. You see, that was the New Testament church, the church to which you belong. See, God still chastens and disciplines his people, sometimes even with death. No doubt, 
You remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, these words, He who eats and drinks the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, says Paul, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Sleep, as you know, is a euphemism for our dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, when God's people sin, he disciplines them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we read this. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Sometimes the Lord's discipline, his chastening, his hand of affliction upon us, is the way out of that temptation. Do you see how the Lord delivered Israel in this instance? By sending upon them these serpents who bit them and killed many of them? And do you see how that itself provided the occasion to escape the temptation that they had fallen into? Sometimes these afflictions are a pruning, making way for the saints of God. You know, this was... Nearing the, the time period, remember that, that the generation, the first generation of Israel that went into the wilderness did not make it out of the wilderness, but were scattered across the wilderness. And the Lord said that the first generation would die off, but their children would go into the promised land. And if we look at the timeline where we are, we're just at that point in time where that first generation is all dying off. But their dying off is, in fact, making way for the Lord to bring their children into the promised land. You see, the Lord was pruning his church, making way for the children to enter into the promised land. So the Lord disciplines his people when they sin because everyone he loves, he chastises. And the purpose of the chastisement, as you know, is to bring about their repentance to deliver them from the sins from which they find themselves ensnared. Now, I want to make a brief caution at this point. We understand, I hope you agree with me, that when God's people sin, he disciplines them. If he doesn't discipline them, it is because they are bastards and not children of his. But something I want you to remember is just because someone is afflicted It does not necessarily follow that they are being disciplined for a particular sin, right? You may at times be be under affliction. You may suffer some difficulty, not because of a sin. Indeed, think of uh, our, our older brother Job. Job suffered. Job suffered terribly. And why did Job suffer? Because he was a righteous man. Think of Jesus Christ, our older brother. He suffered And why did he suffer? Because he was righteous and he came to pay for the sins of his people. So you see, it's possible that we suffer sometimes, not for a particular sin at all, but simply because we are righteous. 
Therefore, in your own lives, when you are suffering some affliction, you do well to ask whether there is a sin from which you must repent, but also to remember you may be suffering simply as one of God's righteous servants. Likewise, especially with other people. Remember this, you will see people around you suffering, and the temptation may enter your mind that they must be guilty of some terrible sin. You don't know that. You don't know that. It may be the case that they are being chastised and disciplined for a particular sin, or it may be the case that they are suffering for righteousness' sake. So be careful about that, that you cannot automatically assume that the saints who suffer are doing so because of some particular sin. Nevertheless, it is indeed the case that when we sin against the Lord, we can expect his chastisement. We come now to our third point, the Lord's deliverance of his people. It was the Lord himself who disciplined the people for their sin. We saw that. So the Lord sent fiery serpents, and it would be the Lord who could deliver them from that same trouble. When you get yourself into trouble with God, the only way to get out of that trouble is with God. As Hosea says, no one can deliver you from God's hand. So if you fall into the hands of the Lord, you need to seek the Lord for deliverance. Our shorter catechism, question 85, says this. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And here's the answer. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Do you see there are three elements there? Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with a diligent use of the outward means. We see all three of these present in this passage. Let's look first at repentance. Repentance, as you know, is turning from sin unto God, right? In repentance, you forsake the sin and you turn unto God, seeking his mercy for you in Jesus Christ, seeking his forgiveness. And this is exactly what we see Israel doing here in verses 7 through 9. And the evidence of their repentance is found in their confession. They say, we have spoken against the Lord and against Moses. Do you notice how particular their confession is? They describe exactly what their sin was. Beloved, do you think God didn't know what their sin was? But that is what confession is. When we go to God and we acknowledge our guilt before him, and we confess particular sins particularly, right? What was our sin? Well, we spoke against the Lord and we spoke against Moses. By the way, this is proof of God's grace amongst his people. That they are repenting of their sins, that they are confessing their sins, shows that God had not forsaken them. Because repentance, as you know, is a work of God's grace whereby we turn from our sins and turn to him for forgiveness. 
So they recognized their sin. They did not minimize it. They did not sugarcoat it. You know, they did not say, well, I'm sorry for that thing that happened. You know, that mistakes were made on both sides. Or can't we just get past that now? Or what's the statute of limitations on blasphemy? No. They confessed their sins and sought the Lord's cure. And then look at this. In order to, to be further humbled, they had to ask Moses to pray for them. Now, this is very fitting for a couple of reasons. Number one, because Moses was indeed God's prophet and representative, right? But number two, their sin had also been against Moses. Do you see that in order to find relief from God, they also had to seek forgiveness from the man whom they sinned against in Moses. We, we read about this in the New Testament, right? When we, we ask the Lord to forgive us our sins, and if we don't forgive others, how, how can we expect God to forgive our sins? Or, or if we are bringing our gift to the altar, and we remember that our brother has something against us, we are to go to him first before we bring our gift to the altar. Christians, we need to remember that our relationship with one another affects our relationship with God. And we cannot mistreat God's children and think that we are going to have close fellowship with their father. And so Israel asked Moses to pray for him, and Moses does. And notice now, they have a sense in their repentance of God's mercy to them. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. They're going to the right place. They understand that if they are going to be delivered from these serpents, it's going to have to come from God. They know it was God who sent them. They know they deserved it. And they know it is God who can take them away. And so at the end of verse 7, Moses prayed for the people. And how does the Lord respond to this repentance? In verse 8, we see God provides the cure for their malady along with some instructions. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Consider first of all the Lord's mercy for those who repent. Psalm 34 verse 18 says this, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And saves such as have a contrite spirit. Do you understand that when we go to, Lord, to the Lord with a broken heart, he does not despise us, right? The smoking flax he will not extinguish. The bruised reed he will not break. When we humble ourselves and go to the Lord, he receives us with mercy. Now this is an odd cure, isn't it? You've been bitten by venomous snakes and the Lord's plan for that is not anti-venom or, or some kind of IV or anything like that, but rather he says, no, no, make a, make a brazen serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up so everyone can look at it. How could that work? Well, I hope you know that ordinarily looking upon a bronze serpent does not cure snake bites, but in this instance it did. Why? Well, it is the power of God. 
according to his promise. What made that bronze serpent effective for curing the snake bites? It was the word of God. It was the power of God. And he worked through that as he had promised. The reason why the bronze serpent worked is because God said it would. This brings us to the second part of escaping the wrath and curse of God, which was with the diligent use of the outward means. The Lord prescribed for Israel an outward means by which they could receive his healing grace. He says, to make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. You know that there was nothing inherent in that serpent, but rather the promise of God healed them when they looked upon this outward or ordinary means of grace. Now, when I use the term means of grace, or when our catechism uses the term means of grace, it's referring to some prescribed instrument that God uses to communicate his grace. Okay? The means of grace, the outward and ordinary means of grace are the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. And the sacraments are, the, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you see, God promises to use those things, those simple and seemingly odd things to accomplish great things. Similar to the bronze serpent, right? Why should the word of God, just a, a simple man standing up here reading to you from the Bible, why should that save your souls? Because God promises to save souls through the proclamation of his gospel. And the power of God working through the Holy Spirit brings about God's promises. But if you are going to take part in it, You've got to diligently attend the means of grace. Let me just pause here for a moment and ask you about that. Are you making use of God's means of grace, of his word, the preaching of his word, the reading of his word? By the way, God particularly blesses the public reading of his word by his ministers and the public proclamation of his word by his ministers. This is his ordained and appointed means of grace. It's wonderful for you to study the Bible at home. It's wonderful for you to do that in small groups. I pray you continue in that. But understand that God particularly has attached promises to the public reading and preaching of the word of God by the ministers of God. So too with prayer. Prayer is a means of grace by which you have the opportunity to petition the God of the universe, knowing that he hears you because of his Son. As well with baptism and the Lord's Supper. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, you are participating in a means of grace, something to which God has attached promises. So, Make diligent use of these means of grace. 
I want to caution us against what I'll call a wrong use of those means. Do you know that this, this bronze serpent by which these people were saved on this day shows up again in Scripture? In 2 Kings chapter 18, we read that Hezekiah removed the high places in the land. By the high places. What is with Israel and the high places? Why are they always putting up these high places? I hope we don't do things like that. And these sacred pillars, and he cut down this wooden image, and then it says, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. So this is interesting. Israel had taken that bronze serpent that had been transported with them through the wilderness, and they made an idol out of it. Right? They were burning incense to it. And I want you to see the difference between a right use of the means of grace and a wrong use of the means of grace. The right use of the means of grace means trusting that God will work through that means as he has promised. The wrong use means trusting in that means itself and seeking to use it in a way that God has not prescribed. God never told them to burn incense to that bronze serpent. He never told them to bow down before it. In fact, he never said it was going to be used after that day. So there's a difference then between those who in faith looked upon the serpent and were delivered, and then those who tried to take it and manipulate God and use it for some advantage. We can do that with our means of grace. But we will press on to look at another element, that is faith in Jesus Christ. Deliverance requires faith in Jesus Christ. And what I want you to know here is that the bronze serpent was itself a type, that is to say, a symbol of Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, in chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord Jesus likened this bronze serpent to himself. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, as God gave that bronze serpent to deliver the people from the consequences of their sins, so too he gave Jesus Christ to deliver us from the consequences of our sins. As the bronze serpent was an odd and unexpected yet miraculous cure, so too the cross is an unexpected and miraculous cure. Why should it be the case that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ should be the salvation of our souls? Well, because that is God's appointment and what God has promised. The cross, even in the New Testament, is called foolishness to those who are perishing. If you think of it from a strictly naturalistic point of view, why should the mere fact that Jesus Christ was crucified take away our sins? It is because God appointed the cross and sent his son to go to that cross and promised that those who believe in his son would have their sins placed upon Christ when he died upon that cross. As the bronze serpent was cast in the likeness of those serpents. Isn't that interesting? The the very thing that was afflicting the people, the Lord said, now make, a, make a, a bronze serpent that looks just like those things that are afflicting you. But this is exactly what it was like with Christ in the incarnation, wasn't it? 
Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, Jesus himself had no sin, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. God sent his own son, Romans 8.35 says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And furthermore, as this bronze serpent, serpent was lifted up, Jesus said that he himself must be lifted up. Now, this word lifted up has a double meaning to it. It's used sort of in a literal sense of lifting something up, and it's used in a figurative sense of exalting something. And both of these are applied to Jesus Christ in his humiliation and in his exaltation. First of all, he was quite literally lifted up in his crucifixion. When you lift up the Son of Man, Jesus, Son of Man, says Jesus, you will know that I am. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. So Jesus, as the bronze serpent, was lifted up on a pole, himself was lifted up on a cross. But in his being lifted up and his suffering and dying, he made way for God to exalt him, to lift him up to the right hand of God. Jesus was lifted up then in his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God. Acts chapter 2, 33 says, Jesus was exalted. It's the same word that Jesus used to describe lifted up. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. So Jesus was lifted up in his crucifixion. He was lifted up in his resurrection. He is lifted up in his ascension. There's another way that Jesus is lifted up. He is lifted up or exalted in the proclamation of the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, Peter said this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, by hanging him on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses. Do you see, every time the gospel is preached, Jesus Christ is lifted up. He is exalted. And here's another interesting connection for us. Remember one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper. When you eat and drink this meal until he comes, you proclaim his death until he comes. You, in taking the Lord's Supper, are proclaiming Christ. And when you proclaim Christ, he is exalted. He is lifted up. And so Jesus truly is lifted up in Christian worship. As God required the people to look upon that bronze serpent, he likewise requires you to look upon his son. You know, the people could have repented of their sins and confessed their sins and had Moses pray for them and the Lord provided the remedy in the bronze serpent and yet they still could have not been saved. You see that? What was critical was they had to look upon the bronze serpent. Those who looked upon it as the Lord commanded were saved. If they did not look, they would not live. And looking at the serpent, they were reminded of their sin. But more importantly, they were reminded that they had to rely upon God and the truth of his promise. 
When the Apostle John describes the resurrection, or excuse me, the crucifixion of Christ in John chapter 19, he says this, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you believe. He then quoted from the prophet Zechariah, saying, They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. To look upon Jesus is to believe in him. To look upon Jesus is to believe in his delivering of sinners, according to God's promise. Now those who looked upon the bronze serpent lived. And do you know, even a weak, maybe a one-eyed or or tear-filled look at the serpent was enough. But they had to look. There were probably people in Israel that day that said, maybe I'll look tomorrow. And they died. There were probably people in Israel who, rather than looking at the bronze serpent that God appointed, continued to look at their snake bites. Or maybe they looked at their neighbor. Or maybe they sought the cure somewhere else. Maybe they sought out a prophet or some other way of being delivered. But do you know the only way that they would be delivered is if, in fact, they looked upon the one God sent. But those who were dying did need to look. And they could not ignore or neglect God's deliverance. It's the same for you, beloved. You have to fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Even as that bronze serpent was lifted up to be a means of salvation, Jesus Christ fulfilled that type. And now he is the one you must look upon for your salvation. Recall that the Lord has called you out of this world. You have, figuratively speaking, crossed the Red Sea in your baptism. You have entered into covenant with God, haven't you? God is leading you to that promised land, the the country whose builder and foundations is God, a city not built by man, but something everlasting, even heaven. But do you know, you, you don't yet possess the fullness of your salvation, do you? God is presently leading you through the wilderness. You still have to deal with the world and the flesh and the devil. You are still susceptible to temptation and to sin. You are in a time of testing, much like Israel was. And in this time of testing, you will experience difficulties and discouragements and temptations to sin. Remember, when God's people sin, he disciplines them. But when they repent, the Lord delivers those who believe. So when you sin, remember that the venom of sin is coursing through your body, working death in you. But the Lord has provided the cure for you. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, has been lifted up for you. You must look upon him and live. Let us pray. Our blessed God, grant to us ready repentance that when we transgress against you, we are quick to come to you. We ask, O Lord, that you would forgive us all our sins for Christ's sake. We ask, O Lord, you would be merciful to us, your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen.